Let's go ahead and get started with the book of Zephaniah. And I want to start by reading the superscript, which says, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, king of Ammon, king of Judah. So, Zephaniah is the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah. And if you look at the timeline in the notes, uh, we see that 722 is the fall of Israel. And so, Josiah begins reigning in 615. So, in 12 years after he began reigning, we have Josiah's reforms... And we know from the book of Jeremiah that Jeremiah is preaching during the ministry of Josiah. So Zephaniah's ministry would have been during the reign of Josiah, but when he was a little boy, before his reforms. And so Israel uh, had fallen in 722. Jerusalem and Judea were still living in open rebellion against God, even though they had just watched their neighbor in the northern kingdom fall. So Zephaniah steps on the scene, starts preaching around 720. There's debate about that, but during the reign of Josiah, before Josiah's reforms. So, The theme of Zephaniah is the approaching day of the Lord. The idea of the day of the Lord being the day that God has said is coming, where there's utter and complete and total destruction, is a theme throughout. Zephaniah, as we have talked about before in prophecy, where you have near fulfillment and far fulfillment, seems to move back and forth in his prophecies between God's judgment on Judah for their sin now, which is going to be them taken away by, uh, by ba- taken away to Babylon, and the end judgment of the earth, which is the ultimate day of the Lord. In fact, if you begin reading uh, in Zephaniah chapter one verse two, God says through the prophet Zephaniah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. That day of the Lord hasn't happened yet. Obviously, because we're men and we're here. So I want to read from... 2 Peter, talking about this exact same thing. 2 Peter 3, 3 through 3-7 says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the Father fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. The day of the Lord is coming 
where heaven and earth will pass away. The Bible says then that God came with a great white throne and there was no place for heaven and earth. That this physical earth, the physical heavens that we look at now, will be completely and utterly destroyed with fire. Scientifically, how God's going to do that, I don't know. I have, have read people that tried to figure out, you know, with if God's holding everything together, all he has to do is withhold his holding and everything will just burn up. I recently was reading and I was showing Ann because we were standing outside and looking at the stars and um, I guess we've been married for 30 years so instead of gazing into each other's eyes we were looking actually at the stars and I, she is, always says, um, I don't know what the, um, the constellations are and I said, well there's Orion, you can't miss him because there's his belt there and then I pointed out that up on his left shoulder there's a star that... Um, Scientists are telling us is soon to go supernova. When I say soon, in astronomy years, it's in the next 200 years. Maybe we'll see it, maybe not. It could have already happened since it's like 70 light years away and we just don't know it yet. But we know that it's, it's over time and that particular star has been recorded as far back as like the Chinese recorded about that star 4,000 years before Jesus. So, because everybody's been looking at the constellations. And that that star is dimming, and then it will get brighter, and then it'll dim. And so what they think is, is that that star is about to go supernova, and that it's spewing gas that's actually making a cloud, and that cloud moving in front of the star is what's making it dim at times. In fact, uh, during December of last year, it was the dimmest it's been in recorded history. So they're expecting any day now or in the next 200 years, it's going to go supernova. And when it does go supernova, it will actually be just a, um, about a seventh dimmer than our moon. And so we'll be able to see it for a short window, for a couple of months, we'll be able to see it during the day. It's going to be so bright. And then at night, it will be not as bright as the, a full moon, but you'll be able to clearly say, hey, there's a star that blew up. That's kind of cool to me. I, so I was telling her about it, and she clearly faded off and didn't, didn't care. Um, my point of this is, is that we get all excited about that and think about that, and we forget that God has said in Zephaniah and in Second Peter that everything is going to be destroyed. It's all going away, which should show us the futility of spending all of our time trying to acquire stuff because everything that we acquire, even things that we think are precious, are all going to get burnt up. It's all for nothing. The only thing that you can come in contact with that's eternal is other people. And so that's where we should be investing our time. That's where we should be focusing our energy I have done a funeral before, and this is not hyperbolic, this is not exaggeration. I have done a funeral before where it was me, it was the funeral home director, it was one family member, and Garrett. And Garrett was there because I had been talking to him on the phone, and he wanted to come see what I would do. But the family had gotten into an argument during the viewing about who got what stuff and so for the funeral, they had all left to go to the deceased's home because they aren't getting that desk, I'm getting that desk. They're not getting that ring, I'm getting that ring. And so her actual funeral, there was nobody there. 
because they wanted her stuff. That really happened. People care more about stuff than they do about the people that they supposedly love. And so what we should see in the light of Zephaniah and in the light of this text in in 2 Peter is stuff doesn't matter. Even precious stuff. Even stuff that's important to us. If it's gone, it's gone. It's all going to burn up someday anyway. And so Zephaniah starts out with a prophecy of judgment. First, against all nations that we read, against all people, against everybody. And then, starting in chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, against Judah. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off this place, the remnant of Baal, the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of heaven. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcon. Those who have turned back from following the Lord who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. Now, here's what Zephaniah is saying. The people of Judah were praying to God. They were going to the temple. They were doing the sacrifices as the law prescribed. And then they would hedge their bets by praying to Milcon, by praying to Moab, by praying to the gods of the Ashtaroth. They would mix their worship of Yahweh with other gods, the, uh, the worlds around them. They let all of that intermingle. They didn't see a contradiction in praying to Yahweh, crying out to God, and then going up on their rooftop and praying to some other god. Now, I read that, and part of me goes, what a bunch of idiots. And then I realize how we are tempted to do the same thing. Whatever this world is going after, that percolates and permeates around us. And we need to be really careful that we don't mix those things. I'm going to be straight up honest with you. We have a hard time picking worship music for this church to sing. And here's the reason why. Most of the worship music that's written today is worshiping me. It's talking about, and you're singing about, how awesome I feel as I do maybe some Christian kind of things, but it's about me. It's how awesome I am. It's about how great I am. It's about how God loves me. And we can't sing that here. We're not going to mix idolatry of self with worship of God. We have to be careful that in preaching and teaching that the world saying, hey, the way that you find your happiness is that... um, you discover who you are, and you, you go after that. When the Bible says very specifically that who you are is lost and undone, and if you live your life for you, then that's antithetical to living your life for Jesus. In fact, Jesus says we need to die to ourselves. Every few years, it seems, some new trend comes down the pike. 
that, that you know, everything from on the internet to preaching conferences tell you if you don't follow after that, then you're, you're a failure. You're, you're not going to succeed in planning a church. Right now, it's the idea of critical race theory and intersectionalism. The idea that if you don't sit around and mourn the fact of what your great-grandparents did, and I, I regularly get texts and emails that say, if you're not preaching against race relations being negative, then you're not preaching the Bible. It's like, well, why would I focus on that? Or pick any trend that's going along right now. That I'm not saying that racism is good. In fact, I will say straight up, if you have a problem with racism, that is no different than any other sin. And, but the, our basis of saying that is not to put sins on ourselves that our grandparents did because that's clearly against what the Bible says. The reason why we need to be careful about race relations is because every human being, whether he's black, white, yellow, green, is made in the image of God. And they carry the Imago Dea. And so we don't need to mix all that up. We don't need to mix politics with what goes on in the church. We don't need to come in here and talk about yay Trump or yay Biden. Because you know what? Biden ain't going to save us. Trump wasn't going to save us. Jesus saves us. And when we start adding and mixing to Jesus plus anything, it equals nothing. We and we alone are commanded to go and make disciples. And when we get distracted by every silliness that comes down the pike year after year after year from the focus on Jesus, the cross, and the gospel, then we lose why we even exist. And we play fast and loose with the definition of the gospel when the Bible makes what the gospel's definition is really clear. Paul said, this I hold... In the forefront, in the first, the gospel that I preached to you. And then he defines what that is. Jesus came according to the scriptures. He lived according to the scriptures. He died according to the scriptures. And on the third day, he was raised again according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. That's what we proclaim. That's what we look at how we live our lives. And when we start adding what the world is doing here and there, maybe just a little piece, maybe this thing or that thing or this little aspect over here, then we lose the centrality of the gospel. And we, even back in the 50s, C.S. Lewis said, I have found that speaking against communism's only success is that it makes it impossible for me to talk about Jesus with a communist. That's not saying that communism was right or good. But it's saying if we make the focus of our preaching in 1950, communism is bad, then it doesn't build up the kingdom and it undermines my ability to preach the gospel to communists. If I say that Democrats are bad, it doesn't build the kingdom and it makes me impossible for me to, to share the gospel with Democrats. If I say that Republicanism is bad, it again, anything added to the gospel of Jesus Christ is wicked. And it's a plot of the enemy to pull us away from what our focus should be. And we see that plot even in Zephaniah. Just add a little bit here. Add a little bit there. And God says, no, it's idolatry. I have given you my word, follow it. So, Zephaniah preaches against 
the coming judgment of Judah. He reminds them that the day of the Lord is near. He then goes on in chapter 2 to call for repentance, the solution for what they've done. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chafe, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do His just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And you know what? If we read the story in 2 Kings, they did. When Josiah found the law of the Lord, the nation repented. And that's why, if you look at your timeline, in 722, we have the fall of Israel. We have Zephaniah's ministry around 600 And for 40 years, Judah isn't destroyed after Zephaniah's prophecy because they did what he said. Believer, I want you to understand that when we call upon the name of the Lord, He is fast to forgive. He is quick with mercy, and He is slow to anger. And so, recognize that. Zephaniah also preaches against Philistia in 2, 4 through 7, Moab and Ammon in 2, 8 through 11, Ethiopia in 2, 12, and Assyria in 2, 13 through 15. And then in 3, he has a charge against Jerusalem and a charge against all nations until we get to 3, 9, which is where I want, I want to look at for a second. So if you turn over to 3, 9... And we talked about the cycle of prophecy... And how prophecy has a blessing and a curse, a wheel and a woe. And so here we've moved from the curse that we see in the first three chapters to the blessing. And Zephaniah says that God says, For at that time I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame, because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people, humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken His judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. And here we see the prophecy of Jesus coming and the millennium kingdom when there will be no war. Swords will be beaten into plowshares. The lion will lay down with the lamb, all under the rule of the king. Now, there's a word that's used here in this praise from 14 on. If you're looking at the ESV, you will see it. Um, 
And that is the word exult. Now, I've always thought it was interesting that when people read on Sunday mornings um, and they come to the word exult, they'll usually read it, even though it says, it has a U, they'll read it exalt. Because we don't say exult. It's not a word that we use a whole lot. But clearly, it's two different words, and God knows how to speak. So I want us to look at why um, God would say that both the, the people of Jerusalem will exult in Him, and then it says in verse 17 that God will exult over you with loud singing. Verse 17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. In the book of Psalms, David regularly says, I will exult in the Lord. The Hebrew word that we're looking at here is gil. And the word exult means the source of joy or gladness This is what's being said. That God is who we exult in. He is the source of our happiness. He lifts us up. He is the one who makes the change in us so that we can experience joy. I think I've shared with you guys that everybody in my family on my father's side is either a Marine or in prison, one or the other. Uh, when I was a young, young Marine, 19 years old, um, we had a, a, an officer come in and say, we are taking applications for folks that are interested in being the Marine guards for the president. Anybody that would be interested in doing that, fill out this paperwork. So I was like, that would be cool. Didn't know any better. I've since learned about what they do in that job, and that would not be cool. But uh, I filled out paperwork. I was excited. I, the, I thought of being on TV, standing there and opening the door for Ronald Reagan uh, was, was awesome, or George Bush, or, or Bill Clinton, whoever. Uh, I, I just thought it would be a super cool thing to do, and I, so I filled out the paperwork. And I, I uh, got a call. Your paperwork's been received. I uh, got, got notified that um, they were looking at my stuff, and then I got a, a letter that said, uh, you have been removed from consideration because there are too many felons in your family. So, there you go. No choice for me, no opportunities, because I've got, I've got uh, an uncle that went to prison for rape. I've got an un- a cousin that went to prison um, for murder. I mean, I mean I, there's some fine people. Um, and if you look at my father's side, again, I, I, not, in fact, there are two strands of, of Harrisons in the United States, and I've done some genealogy research, and uh, there's this Ohio-Virginia strand that's where we have two different presidents, and they're, they're very uppity. They came to Berkeley Plantation. I ain't from that strand. The other strand came late, later, uh, post-Civil War, from Ireland, and uh, they are a group of thieves and scoundrels. That's my people. Um, the only reason uh, that, that I'm standing here before you is that my grandmother uh, prayed for her daughter's husbands. 
And she got saved and started crying out to God that her daughter's husbands would get saved. And my dad, my Uncle Ronnie, my Uncle Gene, that whole family has changed. You've got preachers and you've got people who are serving their king because one little lady who had had her throat removed because she had gotten throat cancer and she couldn't talk. She had no value in the eyes of this world. And she prayed for her daughter's husband. He is the source of my joy. If it wasn't for the fact that God broke into our story, I have no doubt that I would be in prison because I've got the attitude and the arrogance that I would have made sure that that occurred. But God broke into our family and saved people who didn't deserve to be saved. Didn't do anything for Him. Nobody was looking at our family and saying, now we need those people on our team. We were the people that folks would sit around in, in the Hueytown, Garywood area of Birmingham and say, those boys need to be put under the jail. I bring nothing to the table. And yet God said, I'm going to save him. I'm going to make an impact in his life. And so every good thing and every perfect thing that's come into my life from my marriage to my children to the fact that I can keep a job, that I'm not in jail, all of that comes from God. So on a macro level, He exults in us in that He's picked us up and made us His own. And then on a day-to-day level, I could literally graph out my joy and my happiness based on what kind of time I spend in this Word and what kind of time I spend in communion with Him in prayer and what kind of time I spend serving all of y'all. That He is the source of my happiness. He is the source of my joy. That He picks us up and He sets us on a high place. That He not only saves us from hell, He puts us to work for Him and His kingdom. He, we exult in Him because He's all we've got. And He's made us everything that we have. Now, it is shocking to me that it says He exults in us. That He sings over us with loud singing. That God, some reason, finds joy in saving His people and setting them free. That is amazing to me. That the God that made everything that is, that made everything out of nothing, who could have anything that he wants, he finds his joy and pleasure in reaching into the mud and the muck and the world. What is it the Puritan said? The great mystery of salvation is that God reaches into a wicked, corrupt world, takes out his people, cleans them off, and puts them back in a wicked, corrupt world to represent him. That is shocking. And the way that Zephaniah phrases this is so beautiful because it reminds me of someone who is working and doing something. If you've ever been around uh, when someone is doing something and they just enjoy what they're doing and they're just singing along as they go. They're humming to themselves. That Here it says, 
He, the Lord your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. You and I are the apple of His eye. That should have a huge impact in how we live our lives. We don't live as, in, as believers in the light of rules. We're not under the law anymore. We don't, we don't not sin because we're afraid we're going to get struck down. God loved you so much that He saved you. He wants you to have everything that's good and perfect. And so we follow Him. We obey Him. We go where He leads us. He doesn't promise us that there won't be valleys of shadow of death, that there won't be troubles. But He has promised us that when you're in that valley, He's with you. And He's exulting over you. And He's singing over you. He's in your midst with a strong right hand. And He loves you. Father God, Lord, I pray that the prophecy of Zephaniah would have an impact on the way that we live our lives. I thank you for this book. I thank you for the beauty in it. I thank you for the, the blessing that Zephaniah ends with. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So y'all go serve your king. <laughs>